Esta podcast, la confesional de canciones, contiene material y temas adultos que no son adecuados para niños. Mándalos a dormir. This is Walker Lukens, and you are listening to the ninth episode of... Let me explain to you what we do here at the Song Confessional. We travel around the country in our little blue trailer, and we record people telling us stories anonymously. We call these confessions, right? So we give our favorite confessions to songwriters and bands who then make an original song based on your confession. On this podcast, you're going to hear one of your anonymous confessions, then you're going to hear the song it inspired, and an interview with the songwriters who wrote it. I'm sitting here with the Ernie to my bird. Tell him your name. Um, Ernie? Fuck, how does that work? Yeah, I was going to say, my bird or Ernie? I'm not sure. I don't I'm not know sure either. Which, I don't know either. I'll go with Zach. Okay, you're Zach. <laughs> Zach, what's your last name? Catanzaro. His name is Zach Catanzaro. And I want you guys to know that he always takes the rubber ducky home after we're done recording. After tuppy time. Zach, what artist are we going to be hearing from this, this episode? We have Tristan. One name, like Madonna. Like Madonna. Tristan lives and works out of Nashville, Tennessee. She's put out several records, um, several highly acclaimed records. We She came to our attention because she put out a record called Sneaker Waves on Modern Outsider. Which is the same label we've released our last two albums on. Yeah. And also, Tristan is the first artist to ever do the song confessional twice. Um, she did an earlier version of this project. And Zach, can you explain yeah. what the first version of the song confessional long, was like? Long before we had the podcast, before we really knew exactly what this project was, we launched at South by Southwest in 2017, uh, or 2018? 2018. 2018. Feels like three years ago. Um, in 2018, we did an event where basically everybody would have three hours to write and record a song right in the trailer immediately after taking a confession. So it was like super fast streamlined version of what the project is now um and yeah she was one of the best songs that came out of that first kind of trial run and it was just a one-off printed to an lp that was given to that confessor that nobody's ever going to hear but it was good it, it was amazing I, I, it was recorded by uh by wes um who's in our band and, and does a bunch of stuff with the song confessional and it's it's just tristan uh buddy her husband and guitar player, and it, it is such a fantastic song, and uh, you're never going to hear it. Yeah, but we're just going to tell you what you're missing out on. You yeah. will hear this song, though, because we had to bring her back because she's that damn good. Yeah, this song is called Can't Walk That Back. Uh, it was inspired by a confession that um, is is cute. It's it's cute. It's, it's loss of innocence as well, like first loss of innocence. Yeah. Like the first time you realize as a child... The world you're living in is not as it seems. Well, without further ado, here is our confession. Confession. Are you in there? Yeah, is this thing mic'd? It, it's all mic'd. Oh, all right. So, uh, so I always tell people, you know, just imagine you're talking to a stranger at a bar. Uh, you can just, you can just start. You, you know what you want to talk about. It's yeah? a pretty quick story. So you tell me your story, and then I'll ask you some questions afterwards, okay? Okay. Okay, so start whenever. Grew up on Long Island. My father was an attorney for J.C. Penney's handling trademark and intellectual property law. 
somewhere around 1974, 75. I'm maybe somewhere between three and five years old. My father closes a deal between J.C. Penney's and Children's Television Workshop, the producers of Sesame Street, for apparel. At the end of those negotiations, once the ink is dry, my father says, I happen to have a young son that enjoys Sesame Street. We live in New York. Would it be possible to take him to the set of Sesame Street one day? So we do. We go. My mother and father accompany me. We go to the set of Sesame Street. They're taping. When we get there, they walk us through. I sit on the very steps that already meant something to me. I meet Maria. I meet Bob. I meet a couple different random second tier Muppets. And then they whisk us off to an observation area about a story above. And clearly it's for executives, it's got some glass, and you're looking down upon the entire set of Sesame Street. And so far, this is the greatest day of my life. And now I'm getting to watch Sesame Street get made. Being at that age, though, I've got a short attention span. And at some point, my eyes wander towards the ceiling. And there, hanging on three distinct meat hooks, is the lifeless carcass of Snuffleupagus. <laughs> three meat hooks. Snuffleupagus isn't real. That washes over me right away. And how can I trust anything that's presented to me as real without questioning it from there on out? It's a life-changing moment. And it's a moment that A, reminds you that storage is at a premium in New York City. And sometimes you gotta haul the carcass of Snuffleupagus up to the ceiling when not in use. But more importantly, there's kids that much beyond the delicate age I was at still believed in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And we didn't even have to have those conversations because I'd seen the lifeless <laughs> Snuffleupagus divided into three pieces and hung by meat hooks above the set of my favorite television show. It's never been the same. Life has never been the same. Would you like to ask me some questions? Yeah, I would like to ask you some questions. <laughs> so, so you see this while the show is being taped, right? Correct. So you, you have to sit with this news by yourself for some amount of time. Well, I don't know that I was by myself because I was crying. Oh, you cried immediately. Oh, I cried immediately. I may have left that out. And you're and you're There were immediate immediate waterworks. 
works. And so your your father was there, and he, yes. he, he was comforting you, and you were able to sort but of... you can't walk that back. No, even you can't. If, even if you're my parents, there's no way to walk that back. It is what it is. I've seen it now. Did you finish the episode? You... No, I think we left. Yeah, you left. Wow. I think we left. Um, there are f- Now, here's the crazy thing. There are photos of me that day with a giant smile on my face with Bob. A giant smile on my face with Maria. There's another photo where I'm with this second-tier Muppet. Sort of a bluish... I once Googled his name, and I, I don't know it right now. Mm-hmm. But he matches up. He's a, he's a, a Sesame Street Muppet of, of some acclaim. And what's interesting is in the background of that photo, Big Bird is on a stick. So the costume doesn't have anyone in it and is sitting on a stick. And I must have seen that, but I didn't connect... Big Bird wasn't moving around and the Big Bird was a costume. Yeah, yeah. So there was a disconnect there, but there was an actual revelation seeing Snuffleupagus in three pieces. Man, so, th- okay, this is kind of getting to all the questions that I had. So so then you you, <laughs> you find this all out and then you're crying, you, you leave. I mean, were you able to enjoy the show after that? I think at some point you've got to recognize it for what it is, which is puppeteering. Mm -hmm. And it was probably another period of time, or maybe my parents explained to me the concept of puppeteering at the time. But I was a pretty big Muppet fan once the Muppet show came along a couple of years later, and I vividly remember the Star Wars episode of the Muppet show and making sure that we were around to see that, and that would have been 77, 78. And we think this was 75-ish. Hmm. So I'm at least into the Muppets a couple of years later. So so your your understanding of it evolved... But that initial shock for you is is the thing that's lingered forever. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's the initial shock as much as it's the the lesson. Yeah. Which is they were trying to sell me on the concept of a big furry semi-elephant. existence yeah and it winds up that not only doesn't it exist but it's something they would just haul up to the ceiling with meat hooks yeah and I think I lost a a a lot of my uh, not gullibility that day but it, it it definitely made me question everything that came thereafter it, it introduced skepticism into your life into my life from the people you love the most from the people I love the most I, oh, I don't want to blame my parents yeah. for exposing me to it they, they couldn't have known that Snuffleupagus was going to be hanging up there and in fact my my father probably uh, unethically got us invited to the show 
looking out for his son. Yeah. And for the first hour and a half of our experience, I was the happiest child on earth. There's there's a lot of loving uh, gestures around the, uh, the the little trauma. Well, I think I got everything I need. This is a really great story. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. Back at it. Yes. Hi, this is Jim Eno here with... Zach Catanzaro. Yeah, we're doing some production notes on this track. So what was it like working with Tristan on this one, Jim? Well, I wasn't there, but I heard it was great. Ah. I just mixed the track. Okay. Um, the track sounded great when I got it. It was recorded at Royal Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. That's a studio made famous. A lot of the Al Green recordings were done there. Moist vibes invented there. Oh, boy. Invented. <laughs> totally. So Royal Studios was started by Willie Mitchell, and Tristan and the band worked with his son, Boo Mitchell, on this track. Yeah, so this, this track is one degree of separation from Al Green. Exactly. That's pretty cool. And it was a partnership with the Coil Audio guys. They make great gear. Check them out. And one other thing, uh, breaking new ground here on Song Confessional, it's the first session that we've actually had to pay for childcare. Yeah, so hit us up with all your childcare needs. That's uh, add-on service, just maximizing revenue streams. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where's Walker? Yeah, why are you here? That's a good question. I'm not supposed to do production notes. Yeah, I know. Well, I think he's down in Mexico City. Yeah? Yeah, and I don't really know what he's doing there, but I feel like he's sort of losing it a bit. I got this weird voicemail from him the other day. Should I just play it? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. So here's Walker calling me from Mexico City. Um, I think he may need some help. Dear John, in short, I've left. I want to make a new start in America. Don't try and stop me, John. I've already made up my mind. Take care of yourself, John, and never let them get you down. Fight the good fight for me, John. I love you. In case it wasn't clear, I've left. And now, the world premiere of Can't Walk That Back.
Can't Walk That Back was written by Tristan Gaspaderic. It was performed by Tristan, by Buddy Hugan, he plays guitar, Macy Taylor plays bass, and Andy Spore plays drums. It was engineered and produced by Boo Mitchell at Royal Recordings, where fucking Al Green recorded. Uh, we would not have been there without the help from Coil Audio, who we partnered with to do a song confessional session at Royal Recordings. Uh, we have another song from that partnership coming out in a couple months. Uh, additional recording on this song was done at Tight Squeeze Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. It was mixed by Jim Eno and mastered by Chris Longwood. If you enjoyed this song, it can be downloaded and streamed anywhere and absolutely everywhere that you consume your listenables. Man, that fucking song, I love it. I think it's our first rock song. Like, by definition, I, th- I think we can we can agree on that one. It's so much more than just that, but it is our first rock song. It's a band playing instruments, and it fucking rocks. Yeah. Undeniable. You know yeah. what I really like about it is that I've always had a preference for singers that don't sound like they're really trying too hard, probably why I've always been like such a Talking Heads fan, because... David Byrne just speaks his vocals. It seems like he's not, he's never like pushing too far. You don't hear that strain. And Tristan's voice is just like having a conversation. Uh, it's just so pleasant to listen to. Yeah. Well, you know, she, so they tracked that song live in Memphis mm-hmm. at Royal Recordings. And then uh, she actually went back and redid the vocals at, uh, in Nashville because she wanted it to be more laid back. So good observation on her vocal style. It is by by design uh, very laconic and laid back. That's funny. I knew she she recut them, but I didn't realize that that was the specific reason. Yeah, the thing I love about this song is it has a monster bridge. It's it's not just melodically different, but I mean lyrically, it takes the song in a new direction. Zach, can you explain maybe in layman's terms what a bridge is? Yeah, I would I would say a bridge in music or a bridge in a song is akin to a montage in a movie. (laughs) It's like all of these ideas like that you, for some reason you couldn't put in the normal part of the song, but it really makes sense and it's really effective and helps drive the story further and paint more color and widen the picture a bit. And so it's like, it's different from the verse and the chorus. It's only going to happen one time and you're going to get a chorus at the end because God damn it, you need it. There are so many songs with amazing bridges, but maybe just to give you one example is like the part in Wouldn't It Be Nice, uh, the song by the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. where he says, Maybe if we think and wish and hope and pray, it might come true. Run, run, Ryu. <laughs> Too sweet? Just sweet enough. Thanks. Tristan uh, lays out her whole theory on verses, bridges, and choruses uh, in our interview. 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 Who am I speaking with? Um, my name is Tristan, and uh, yeah. Tristan, what's your last name? My last name is Gaspaderic. Okay. I've been trying to figure out how to pronounce your last name just looking at it. I'm no, so sure. it's just how it seems. Yeah. But it's long and there's a lot of consonants and... Yeah, Gaspaderic. Mm-hmm. That's a really pretty name. What's the name of the song that you wrote? Can't Walk That Back. And what is uh, what is the song about? Well, you'll in the confession, mm-hmm. um, the gentleman says, you know, you can't walk that back. And so I listened to it a couple of times and I felt like that was such a cool kind of uh, uh, regional phrase or maybe... 
Yeah. Yeah, you it's know? very colloquial. I like yeah. it. And but everybody knows what it means mm-hmm. because there are always situations in your life where you do something to someone or um and you can't go back from it like, you know, if a partner cheats and you try to make up you know, try to get past it and, you, and it's just irreparable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like the idea where the, uh, your anger uh, drives a nail into a tree. Mm-hmm. Like every time you're angry and you explode at someone, it's that you, you, you pound a nail into a tree and you can pull the nail out, but the hole's still there. Yeah. yeah. So this is, is a great phrase. Right. And honestly, I missed it until, until I heard your song. Like, I missed that phrase in the whole confession. And yeah. then after you say you're like, no, he says it. And then I listened back. I was like, yeah, it is a great part of the confession. Well, and I was trying to figure out, well, it's a song about loss of innocence, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a song about um, being sort of sucked back into reality. You're yeah. sucked out of your dream, you know. And, um, and, and or a turning point in your life where um, nothing will ever be the same again. Because, like, for example, you've had... Um, a failure or you've had some kind of, you know, lost a friend, a friend dies and nothing is ever the same after that because you have an acute awareness of your mortality and how that changes your perspective on things. Just uh, moments because you really are in your younger years kind of, you know, someone takes care of everything for you. You know, if you're, well, okay, let me just preface that by if you're super privileged yeah. Someone takes care of everything for you. Someone provides for you. I think when you're when you're no matter what, when you're a child like that young, like like he was in the confession, you look to others to provide for you. You right. know, even if they're not being provided for. You need. Yeah. You still need. What was your way in with this song? Did you think about things in your own life that like loss of innocence, your own experiences or or did it just sort of flow, you know? Like, how long did it take you to write the song? What was the process like of actually writing it? Uh, well, I, you know, songs happen very fast for me. Mm-hmm. Um, if I sit down to write a song, I can write one. But I would say about the story itself, I was looking for the lesson in it, the reason why it was a significant moment for him. And then I was trying to figure out the phrase, which I found, then I re-listened to it, found Can't Walk That Back. I think the verses came pretty quickly. I think I probably wrote it in a couple of hours. I always revisit the next day. I get like the bulk of the idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's no bridge or something. Yeah. Come back to it. I look to a, the bridge to, if I'm doing a good job, mm-hmm. try to reinforce the main idea in a way that's either more uh, focused or more like out of focus, you know, like yeah. some way other perspective to clear up the main idea um i look to verses to be like detail oriented mm-hmm. choruses to be main ideas bridges to be reinforcement of the main idea in some unique way the way that i connected with the snuffleupagus thing was thinking about uh definitely loss of innocence like you said but also i thought a lot about his parents for some reason was there a part when you're writing this song that that you were all relating to that because you have a young son. How old is Julian? He's eight months. He's eight months. Did that ever cross your mind when you were writing this song? No. I didn't think about him because he's so little. I just really thought about the guy. Yeah. I love that. I really I really like 
hearing you talk about your process because it's 1000% different from mine. <laughs> but you were saying like the chorus is sort of like the thesis statement. True. The verses are details and the bridge should reinforce or like add a different color to the story. I, I love that too because it sounds to me like you're just talking about the lyrics when, you, I am. when you're saying this. I know. I love that. I don't think I don't think that way so whatsoever. So interesting. Um, so you said your son is eight months old. Yes. Yeah, and you're still t- playing shows out of town. And yes. We we had you go to Memphis to record. Uh, so it doesn't seem like having a kid has slowed you down on the face of it well it has slowed me down Mm -hmm. however what happens is you get slowed down a little bit and then you also trim the fat so any kind of fat social media two hours a day fat Mm -hmm. um i don't really remember i've been a mother for eight months i don't really remember what i used to do i just know that now my day is consumed with taking care of my baby Mm -hmm. And that I try to get the most essential things done in windows of time. And then I have to get childcare if I want to work. Um, so that's just how it goes. And Buddy and I have figured out kind of like how to record separately. But then we also bring in, um, we have help when we need to work together. But yeah, and touring is like a, just another thing to set up and tear it down. Another but that's the thing about having a kid. It's a lot like touring, you know, when mm-hmm. you're packing the diaper bag <laughs> and yeah. you're thinking about what their next meal is going to be. I mean, that's really a lot of being a mother is figuring out, like just projecting what meals will be. and <laughs> Being a couple steps ahead. You do. Meals. You have to. Yeah. And then like my sister just had her second child and you really have to, you have to set up the first child before you take care. You know, there's a whole lot of, Processing it has slowed me down, but on to be honest with you. I don't really care about slowing down being a parent just like slaps you across the face It's just like this giant like wake up like mm-hmm. what you're selfish. You don't do shit all day long You are like following your muse. Ha 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 like you know this wow. baby needs you now and 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 there is a lot of mundane uh, You know watching them mm-hmm. But that's a good exercise for me because I'm a busybody so I had to be like no sit down yeah raise your child exist it doesn't matter one thing that I have noticed uh, as everyone around me starts to have kids or is making a really conscious decision not to have kids yeah I feel that uh, that's happening around me a lot right now oh yeah Uh, one thing that's so fascinating about it too is now that I'm older uh, I hear more people say what you said, which is like, my career isn't my whole life, and being a mom isn't my whole life. Nope. You can just do all these things at once, you yeah. know? And I just, I mean, honestly, I had to have a child. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you, I can tell you I always knew I wanted to have children, and I just, the physiological urge for me was so strong mm-hmm. that it had to happen. There was no, it wasn't something I was willing to give up uh, because I didn't want to distract myself from my life as a musician, which I still feel like I, I still feel pretty free, you know? I feel mm-hmm. like I get to do what I need to do. I just have to be a lot more focused about it. Like, 
planning far in advance, you know, things that are going to be happening. Some, you know, I can't make a change in plan four days before. Yeah. It takes a, you have to have advanced notice. You have to line a lot of people up. I have a lot of people helping me, um, whether it's uh, just, you know, family or just, you know, friend family, you know, like the, the women who watch Julian, who just love him, you know. Yeah. And it's great. Have you had any mentors along the way? That's a really good question. Um, my father. When yeah. I was young, was a mentor mm-hmm. musically. Really? Oh, one hundred percent. He um, would make these instrumental tracks for me because <laughs> I was a singer. Wow! And I loved to sing, and I started writing songs, and he would help me with the guitar parts. And I well, I really learned guitar at fourteen because I really wanted to like go off on my own, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, and my father had a home studio, and he would help me record things when I was really young. And so it was just like a natural progression for me when I moved out of the house to figure out a way to record by myself. So I got like a, a little Mbox Mini, remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Mbox Mini, yeah. Yeah, old school. And yeah. then I would I learned how to really play to, you know, to click, you know, recording mm-hmm. by myself, making demos. And um, I didn't have any money to pay someone to go into the studio, so I was like, I'm going to just DIY this completely. Mm-hmm. And I did for years, but... I guess my father was definitely a huge mentor. And then, um, yeah, I feel like every friendship I have with other musicians is a mentorship in some way. Like, you know, living in this town, I feel like the thing that keeps me grounded is knowing how talented my friends are. I'm like, hey, you know, Mm -hmm. I get to be around these people who are some of the best, you know, creators. And that keeps me learning and just like conversations like this you know you get to have with people it's so nice to be surrounded by people who are doing what you're doing and are inspiring to you right keep you grounded and go through the same struggle you know yeah commiseration Mm -hmm. it's a powerful tool you know and i think that's what has kept me in this town for so long yeah uh how long have you lived in nashville uh for 12 years a long time yeah yeah yeah, it's been really. I mean, as I'm like getting ready to do sort of a different thing for the next foreseeable future, which is just like hang up my Walker Lukens band Cloak. leader guy. It's been really <laughs> nice talking to you because I I love that this interview happened at your house. Yeah, I feel like so surrounded by your world. It's like yeah. Buddy and Julian are upstairs walking around. We're in your studio, yeah. you know. And we we've had a couple breaks in the interview because like you're just living your life, but it's really nice for me to see because like you have a full existence. Oh, yeah. You're not just like Tristan the singer, which is so no. easy to miss, you know, when you're when you're and, talking with people. And honestly, I want people to miss it because I have like my public, yeah, my work, and I'm really thinking a lot more about like how ke- to keep that separate because social media can be so invasive. Yeah, and there are some things I don't care to share with everyone. It's good to know the line. It's, it's like, really good to know And the you're line. trying to direct people yeah. to what matters to you, which is your music. Yeah. In a social media world where, like, being good at that is a whole other art form. Totally. And I have friends who are really good at it. And I I just don't personally feel like that's what I have time for right now. So, mm-hmm. my, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to, like, continue to direct people mm-hmm. to my work in association with who I am. Uh but yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, when you 
read about people, your heroes, and you listen to their records and you look at the photos, you're seeing the highlight reel. But everybody totally. Had... No one's talking about how regularly they do their laundry or do yeah. they actually fold it? Yeah. After they dry it or just sit in the dryer for like three days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So before y'all had Julian, you also opened a vintage store not too long before that, right? I'd always side hustled yeah. vintage clothing. Um, really? Yeah. So there was a... But wait, what's the name of your shop for everybody? Uh, Anaconda Vintage. Okay, cool. I had this idea of starting a co-op, you know, where we had a lot of different vendors and we all work a day a week and we all make what we sell and we kind of encourage uh, people running their own businesses to like come together. And uh, so we did it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really I th- I think it's so cool that you you have so it's a vintage store, but it's also like a small business co-op. So there are other really vendors is. in there. I mean, of course, my sister and I own it, and we um, we sort of rule the space in the sense that we have a lot of mm-hmm. standards because we wanted to make it very customer friendly, like focused on make it easy to shop and sizing, measuring everything and sizing everything for the customer. So you have a lot of rules. So it's not like, hey, let's all get together and figure out what's going to happen. We sort of dictate how the business is run, but the way that the, the pay is, con- is constructed, we all pay for everything and we all make what we sell. And mm-hmm. so your motivation is uh, directly reflected in the amount of money you make. And yeah. we have really people who take it very, very seriously and are really good at it and have their own shops as well outside mm-hmm. of it. And then we have people who are like, you know, toy musicians and this is their side hustle and they yeah. don't, they focus on it when they can and it's cool, you know. And mm-hmm. so it actually has turned out to be uh, really great for me because I can raise my child and I can do music and I can also, you know, uh, pay my mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> You can't download a pair of vintage jeans. So. <laughs> you can't stream. I'm sorry, stream a pair of jeans. That's the better. That's the rhyme. You can't stream a pair of jeans. And this is kind of a digression, but also something I think that's mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a lot. You know, there's I was talking to somebody and they said to me kind of awkwardly in a conversation, well, you know, I make a living playing music now. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know that. You had a really successful couple of records and you're going to continue to because you're insanely talented. I thought that about you when I met you 12 years ago and you Mm -hmm. played a show for five people and you blew me away. Yeah. But I think that it was really important for this person to achieve that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember that feeling of quitting my waitressing job and my song was on NPR and I like turned the radio on at my waitressing job and I was like done with my lunch shift and I was like throwing my apron and I was like (laughs) bursting outside and the sun was shining and you know buddy picked me up in the band van and you know anyway (laughs) you know that feeling of like I'm gonna get to like not have a job and then I had this joke because I because my friend and I who she's also a musician we like sleuth and try to figure out what people's day jobs are because like jonathan richmond builds furniture and everybody has a day job everyone's got a thing but then i was thinking about vh1 behind the musics where they'd be like quiz 
what was David Bowie's first job before he... (laughs) Like, what did he do as a teenager? And, like, the updated version of that would be like, quiz, what does David (laughs) Bowie currently do to make money? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, um... So I think that, but I, uh, getting back to like a larger cultural issue of us necessarily and maybe maybe unnecessarily tying success to money, money, right? Mm-hmm. And then being in an environment where there is really no money anymore because somehow Spotify yeah. hasn't figured out to do what the film industry does, which is just basically make certain records available and then paywall other records and have in-app purchases yeah. Hint, hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. can make more money and everyone can get paid. Yeah. Uh, we haven't f- figured out, like, the, the music industry is just not smart enough to figure out how to pay everyone. Because mm-hmm. I personally think running a business, that's part of your job. Like, you need to figure out how to pay everyone. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> raise your price. Yeah. We'll pay it. But anyway, uh, in a world where now everything's free and we are as artists sort of like, well, you have to just remove, you have to sort of remove that idea from your head that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to reconfigure and you have to actually be in it for the uh, process and the glory. Like you can't try to get rich in the music business anymore. It's not going to happen. There's no middle class. Yeah, there's really not. You seem about... Well, Maybe this is just my terms, but you seem successful. You have a lot of good things. Your music's yeah. awesome. It's loved by people. You have, you have young family. You guys are making your own records. Uh, do you feel successful most of the time? On your uh, own terms? That's all. Yeah, I do. I feel, again, like I feel comfortable saying things like, I can write a song if I sit down to do it. I feel comfortable yeah. with who I am and what I'm able to do creatively. And I feel really comfortable with my work. Mm-hmm. I feel proud of it still, even though maybe I listen to my old records. I'm like, oh, I'm singing that way. You know, yeah. I feel still feel proud of my work. And I do feel successful. Um, I feel like I have everything I've ever wanted, That's which awesome. is a crazy. I feel really, really grateful. Mm-hmm. And I work really hard, too. But I understand that there's the invisible luck factor, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the, one of my favorite authors, Elaine de Baton, he has this whole thing that he talks about. And which I think it's which book? I like um, All of them. But yeah. I mean, I the canon that he did on all the philosophers, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a good one. Um, I don't think you can go wrong if you get one of his books. He he writes really clearly. And yeah, yeah I, like, I like him. I think he's great. It's kind of like easy reading, but also mm-hmm. can be pretty inspiring. But he has this discussion about um and i it resonated with me that you know one of the biggest problems with like not wanting to share and like being like i worked hard to get what i have is there's this invisible factor of luck lady fortune and we have this scientific culture where we're measuring and we're not thinking Mm -hmm. about the the mystical which is fortune the luck that you have in your lifetime Mm -hmm. and so um it's easy to be ungrateful and ignore all the luck. The thing, you know, I'm lucky to have met my partner. I'm lucky to have, you know, had parents that set me up to do music and encouraged me and said everything yeah. I did was great. You know, I ha- I'm lucky to have been able to go to the school I went to. I went to a good college and all the privilege. I mean, that's that's the conversation about privilege that's invisible. Mm-hmm. Your privilege is invisible um, because you... Until so, you understand the concept of fortunate luck, 
lady luck and privilege. And then once you understand those, it's a practice in being grateful. I am a fixer. So I look at the, I tend to just like look at what needs to be fit, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's when I talk about things like the way things have gone and the timing of, you know, us doing music and how it's free and, you know, seeing my, the lead singer, my favorite band making coffee like that. It's that same idea in my head where it's like, you should be your creative success should match financially. You should be able to figure it out. But actually there's two very separate things. You have to have a hustle in one way to anything that you want to do to get money requires some sort of sacrifice. Yeah. It's called work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like people see you come up and play your show for the night, but they don't see you like loading the gear in, loading the gear out, sitting in the van for hours, eating, drinking Starbucks coffee because it's the best coffee you can get on the road. 100%. It's the same <laughs> thing every time, which is so great. You know, yeah. it's like those things. Um, ah, the strife of yeah. a Starbucks coffee over a craft coffee. <laughs> Well, I'm always struck with some of my closest friends who don't do music. They'll we'll, we'll come back and they'll ask how my trip was. Oh, yeah. Trip. And it's such an innocent question. It's like... How was your vacation? Yeah. It's like... It, that's what it sounds like. It's like, oh, I wasn't anything like you think. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or but. when you have a job and you go on tour and you come back, you're like, you were on vacation the whole time. You're like, you're like no, no, this is no, vacation. Yeah. <laughs> Getting off after seven hours of work or is a vacation. Touring is a lot to ask of people. Yeah. And it's, it's an education and a, that you have to do to get that experience and education. Zach, didn't you used to work at Chuck E. Cheese? That was supposed to be a secret. <laughs> I did. My senior year in high school, I was Chucky. I was the rat. Oh, wow. I know. I never thought about the fact that he's a fucking rat. Yeah, he's a rat that likes cheese and lives in a fucking pizza parlor. It's weird. Wow. It's like almost as cool as Fraggle Rock. You know, they worship trash. <laughs> I think that's cool. It's that's cool. really cool to me. That's a bunch of rats tripping on acid in the sewer. Chucky's all hopped up on cheese, lactose intolerant, just <laughs> farting on little kids. When when you were Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, did you... You must have been dealing with kids, oh, some all, of whom thought you were actually a all the time. mouse. You're a deity. You're yeah. not a mouse. You're a fucking deity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was it was really fun. It was a weird experience to like be a character and to be believed as that character because they're kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Same with, like, Snuffleupagus. You think it's real yeah. until the day you find out it isn't, which happened once. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Not with me, but I was, like, the go-to Chucky, and there was another friend that started working there at the same time I did, and it was a brand-new location, so, like, everybody trained together. And he was probably 6'4", one of those high school kids that just was, like, <laughs> way past everyone else. Um, and he really wanted to be Chucky, but it's a job for kids, and that costume is not meant for men that are 6'4", uh, so it was just way too small for him, so management always was like, 
you know, trying to like push him off. And he's like, oh, no, but you said anybody that wants to gets a shot. And so one day they finally let him after he's just like pestering, pestering, pestering. And it's like a serious birthday party Saturday. And on Saturdays at Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, it's worse than Costco. <laughs> it's like it's, it's a, a fever dream. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably seven birthday parties going on at one time. And there's this massive circle of kids, and they're playing the Chucky birthday song. And he's dancing around, and he's, like, really getting into it. At one point, he throws his hands up in the air and knocks the head off. <laughs> and granted, his, his arms are already sticking out of the sleeves. His legs are sticking out of the pants. He's just, like, this big, lucky guy. Hits the head off, and he's just, like, this nerdy, pimply-faced, tall high school kid. And kids start <laughs> screaming. They start crying. Moms are shielding their eyes and their coats. It's like a war scene on the floor of Chuck E. Cheese. He frantically tries to, like, play it off put the head back on and like keep dancing but it's just over those kids i mean they're still scarred wow yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i never really had any uh any of that yeah you were never a mascot for a pizza place (laughs) well that and i was never a kid who thought that chucky was anything but a teenager in a in a suit well when we were kids he was animatronic that was Truly scary Wow, you're shit. like a fucking Chuck E. Cheese historian. You know all of this. I'm like, Chuck E. Cheese birthday song? I don't remember that. Animatronic Chuck E. Cheese? What? Well, when you're Chucky, you learn the history of Chuck E. Cheese, which is his name, Chuck space E right. space Cheese. Also, Chuck E. Cheese, you owe us a lot of money for this episode so far because we're giving you a dumb amount of free advertising. Yeah, really. I, I don't think I've been to Chuck E. Cheese since I was a kid. Yeah, you also can't. Yeah, I can't go. They they don't, this is a great rule. Good job, Chuck E. Cheese. You can't be an adult without a kid. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. They're, they're already working against the fact that their mascot's a fucking rat. Mm-hmm. They should probably keep the pedophiles <laughs> out of there. <laughs> yeah. One dirty bird at a time. One thing that is uh, is funny about the the confessor in, in telling this story is like I just love that he goes back to believing maybe kind of possibly that Snuffleupagus was real. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a beautiful little kid way of seeing things. You like are traumatized and the next day you're like, but maybe you're still hopeful. Exactly. It's like finding out Santa Claus isn't real, but then still writing your Christmas wish list to Santa because you're like, well, Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, I found out Santa wasn't real uh, because we were going to travel on Christmas Day and not do Christmas at our house. Mm. And I had, had an inkling. That's, yeah. But my parents were like, you don't really believe, do you? And I was like, no. How old were you? I was like eight. And they, they approached it saying, you don't really believe, do you? It was sweet. I'm making it sound like it was har- uh, harsher than it was. It was it was a sweeter approach, but it was like, hey, you know, we're going to travel on Christmas Day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're not going to celebrate Christmas morning. My parents were like, you know, Santa doesn't really bring presents. <laughs> but you don't still believe, do you? And I was like, no. <laughs> no. I'm a big kid. I'm an adult. I'm going to be double digits in two Sorry, years. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I was shaving. <laughs> <laughs> Little Walker shaving with his first caffeine buzz. <laughs> what were you saying, Mom? I'm drunk on martinis. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe in Santa. I'm working on my NPR voice, Mom. Leave me alone. (laughs) 
The theme song you heard at the top was written by me, Walker Lukens. It was It was performed by myself, Zach Catanzaro, James Wesley Essery. It was engineered by Grant Epley, and then mixed and made a little louder by Matt Gerhardt. The Song Confessional Podcast is brought to you by KUTX and produced by myself, Walker Lukens, Aaron Blackerby, Jim Eno, Ryland Kettery, and Mike Lee. Also, thank you to Elizabeth McQueen for all your help, and apologies to Matt Riley. I'll let you wear the bubble beard next time, baby. If you enjoyed this podcast, the absolute best thing you can do is forward it to a friend that you think would like it as well.